Hello, and welcome back to The Answer Is No. My name is Alexis Clements, and I'll be your host. Our goal with this podcast is to share stories of artists saying no to bad gigs in order to think more broadly about how to make the arts a more equitable and sustainable field for everyone. Today, I'll be speaking with interdisciplinary artist Fields Harrington. The answer is no. This episode of the podcast is going to focus on something that happened in 2020 that caught headlines around the world, specifically the canceled Whitney Museum show titled Collective Action. We'll get into more details in the conversation with Fields, but I want to quickly recap what happened for those of you who don't know or who don't remember the story. On May 25th, 2020, father, grandfather, mentor, and hip-hop artist George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. Nationwide protests erupted after video of Floyd's murder became public, and those protests echoed years of organizing and effort from the Black Lives Matter movement. As part of the protests, many artists worked with organizations around the country to generate work to be sold, often in auctions, in order to generate funds to support communities of color. In addition, many institutions put out open calls for work by artists responding to the events that were driving the protests. Unbeknownst to a number of artists participating in these open calls, the Whitney Museum of American Art decided to begin collecting some of the work that was being sold in these auctions or given away in these open calls in order to create an exhibition. Most of the artists whose work was going to be included in the exhibition didn't find out about it until a couple of weeks before the show was set to open, when they got an email from Faris Wabe, the museum's director of research, who was curating the show. For those unfamiliar with the museum acquisition process, it's crucial to mention here that it is highly unethical for a museum to acquire the work of a living artist without paying or consulting with that artist. Some people have made the argument that most of the work that was going to be included in the show could be considered ephemera, but the reality is that not all of the work can be categorized that way, and none of the artists were given any say in what was being collected or how it would be contextualized. And perhaps most importantly, for a museum like the Whitney, which has been criticized for decades for the lack of artists of color in their collection, this was a deeply cynical and problematic way to try to fix that problem. Statistically speaking, the lack of representation of artists of color in museums has been an issue for as long as museums have existed in this country, and it's something that's been the subject of protest for decades. In January of 1969, the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, a group of 75 Black artists, protested an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art focused on Harlem that included not a single work by a Black artist. This helped spur another group, the Art Workers Coalition, that was protesting against the Museum of Modern Art later that same month to demand that MoMA address the lack of Black and Brown artists in their leadership and collection. Here we are, more than 50 years later, and a study released in 2019 revealed that the collections of 18 of the country's leading museums are 85% white and 87% male. 
Let me repeat that. In 2019, the permanent collections of many of the country's most important art museums are 85% white and 87% male. My guest today, Fields Harrington, was one of the artists whose work was going to be part of the Whitney's Collective Action Show, and he was also one of the people who crafted an open letter to the Whitney in response to the events surrounding the cancellation of the show. I feel particularly drawn to his work. Many moons ago, I studied the history and philosophy of science, and I particularly love the way Fields is appropriating the language and subjectivities of science to explore Black identity and cultures. Given that science has a long history of subjugating and appropriating Black life and culture, this flip is a powerful and rich place to explore. His work, which ranges across media, from drawing to sculpture to performance and installation, is well worth spending time with. And I was glad to get to spend a bit of time speaking with him about his work and experiences. Let's start the show. When you were little and looked ahead to adult life, what did you imagine for yourself? I guess it depends on what age. When I was about 14, I was living in Las Vegas and I was in middle school and I remember taking this class, an art class, and we would do like, you know, wire sculptures for a couple weeks and then we'd be done. And then uh, we took a class where we could learn um, Japanese. There was another class that was on meteorology. I really enjoyed the meteorology class, just like learning about different weather systems and why certain cloud formations looked the way that they did. So there was a time that I wanted to be a storm chaser, <laughs> weatherman. <laughs> I was kind of all over the place though, but that's, I think that's my favorite one to think back on. I should also mention like meeting another friend when I was like in high school, met at this weird camp in, in the middle of Texas and then continued to be friends. And And they showed me the like San Antonio gallery nights and when i was in high school there was a area um, behind a, a brewery i think it's blue star before blue star was what it is now there used to be these silos like in the across the tracks behind it and that's where you had like these artists who would just rent out these old grain silos and like use them as like a space to show their work you know i was like kind of in awe by that too and i, I don't remember how much people were paying because i never asked but it was like a low, a really low fee, and it was really about just people coming out uh, first Fridays and like seeing what you had made, and it was just like a younger scene, and it felt like less pretentious than what I saw in some of the smaller galleries in Blue Star. At what point did you make the decision to pursue the arts as a career? I would say in my late twenties. I went to a community college in San Antonio. You know, I was floating around, like, really not knowing what it was I wanted to pursue. Then, um, like, I got, like, a small, like, digital camera, I think, as a gift. My girlfriend at the time, whose father, like, was really, like, into their garden, had these beautiful flowers. So I'd take pictures of those, and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll take a photography class. So that's what I did. I just took all the photography classes and, and did, like, my last two years at the University of North Texas in their fine arts photography um, program and got my undergrad bachelor's at that point I was like yeah this is like maybe it's a possibility but then 
after graduating and moving to New York, I just worked and didn't really have a lot of time to pay attention to my art practice anymore. So I would never, like, during that time, I was never saying, like, I was an artist. I was, like, always, like, no, like, because I'm not making it actively and because I'm, like, not making money from it. It was weird. I had to tell myself, like, I wasn't an artist. And when people would ask me, like, oh, what do you do? You know, like, I wouldn't say that I'm an artist um, because it didn't feel like it was my career. But then I think I had about a, you know, seven to eight year break before going to grad school for about two or three years prior to that, I was thinking like the only thing I can think about doing in life is like making work because I started to see more people who were having these careers that weren't just making all of their income from their production. They were facilitating other avenues for for resources and, and income. Was that the thing that helped shift things in your mind, meeting other people and seeing how they actually put their artistic lives together? Seeing that there was a range of like how people were making it work. Working like as an art handler for the first time too. And then also that world was like introducing me to other folks that were wanting to do the same thing as me, but like they had like this way of arranging many different places to get income from, but still were like exhibiting and showing work, you know, and finding time in the night to make work. And then also, like, working in the service industry, too, there's a lot of artists that I met when I was working as, like, a food runner. But maybe that's specific to New York. I'm not too sure. But I felt like it had something to do with, like, being in these specific industries. Um, Because, you know, I think coming into a graduate program later in life and also when you've had such a a big gap between your MFA and and your BFA, I hadn't been thinking about my art practice as like my peers. One of the things that's so striking to me about your work is its use of scientific aesthetics to explore race and racialized cultures. I'm thinking of your series of drawings of patents by Black inventors titled Black Secret Technology, or your 2018 performance, An Approximation of the Mix, where you use acoustic levitation to levitate your hair while applying the hair product S-curl to it. At what point did you start to hone in on the language of science as a central interest in your work? I guess you could say subjective experiences, the lived experience of of Black life and how it's been under a microscope in in the field of science, in the field of medicine, in in the field of experimentation, trying to define or be compared or pushed into a category of like less than or non-human when it's placed in the position of these fields of examination, of, of, of description, of categorization, which usually are in the natural sciences, which usually are in the medicine field. Um, so these empirical systems that we rely upon or truths or proofs or evidence subjects the black body to a non-humanness or less than humanness or close to an animal of some sort. Um, So thinking about that and thinking about, you know, what it means to be in an inner subjective place, I think led me to doing that performance. Given the complexity of your work and the ways that it mixes scientific language and African-American cultural narratives, it's really notable to me that the work that was going to be included in the collective action show was very different from your primary body of artistic work. It's a stripped-down digital illustration in red, black, and white that includes the text, Abolish Fucking Cops. Would you define that work as an artwork, or is it something else for you? 
I would call it digital ephemera or digital drawing. I made that specifically for an open call that was from printed matter that was looking for zines, ephemera, posters, pamphlets that were centered on, you know, the civil unrest of the pandemic and also of the protests. At the time, I, I couldn't I couldn't go to all the protests, and I was also feeling very, you know, kind of conflicted about that, you know, not being able to just leave and go to every protest and be a part of that movement um, in the ways in which I was, like, witnessing my peers or my, my followers or, my, or, or the people I was following as well. And so the other way to participate, I thought, would be to, like, make something that could be downloaded and printed by someone else or put on someone's screensaver, um, their back, background image for their phone, whatever. I knew it was going to be downloaded for free by other people. I did suggest that they would donate to several different organizations that were um, assisting people with um, being uh, incarcerated or other organizations like that. So they had the option to, to donate if they chose to, but it was always just for free. Like I made that specifically just for that. And um, I don't identify it as like as a work um, because it I never intended it to live inside of an institution like a museum or a gallery. As I understand it from the news stories and posts online, most of the artists found out about their work being included in the show when they got an email from Faris Wabe, the Whitney Museum's director of research, just a little bit before the show was set to open. Did you get one of those emails? I did receive an email. And when I read the email, I was really confused because A, I've never been acquired by any museum or, you know, whatever gallery. So I was like, oh, maybe this is normal. Like you don't get paid, you know, for this type of stuff. <laughs> but I but I double checked. So I, I reached out to um, my former professor, Michelle Lopez, and I reached out to my former professor, Sharon Hayes. And and with Sharon, I had, you know, very expansive and informative uh, conversations about the possibilities of this arrangement that I had been you know, kind of placed inside of. And yeah, and that was really extremely helpful to hear someone who is in the art world, who has a relationship with this institution, and hearing like that there's just, there was a multitude of ways of going about that situation and that like, you know, those acquisitions are not free. Um, you know, and then, and also talking to other people, Tina Zavasanos and Park MacArthur, they all were very helpful in, in having an American artist. Like they all were very helpful when I reached out to them about because I reached out to people who I knew had these specific relationships with this space. But it wasn't until I didn't do anything. I didn't like. I didn't like act on it. I just kind of like was trying to draft an email. Um, as a response. Once it kind of exploded on Twitter is when I realized I was like, oh, it, it was like a lot of people who were impacted by this. And I would like to kind of like get these artists together and like respond as like a collective as opposed to as like an individual, because I think there's always more leverage and power and working with the many as opposed to the, the singular in these situations, you know. For you, what was the distance in time between receiving that email and 
the point at which it started to blow up on Twitter? I think it was um, about a week. I think I must have received like the email a week prior to seeing it go viral on social media. But I know that some people had received an email from Paris, like, you know, before I did, like weeks before I did. And so the timing is a bit of a blur in that situation. But I think once I saw it on Twitter, I was like trying to just like look to see who was talking about it in that Twitter universe. And then eventually I was contacted on Twitter in a direct message from an anonymous um, Whitney Museum employee who like had a list of all the names and they're like, like, here you go. Here's everybody who is in the in the show. So I just like tried to Google all the emails. And I think I got a lot of them wrong because people have similar names and I just didn't do a good job of like, you know, double checking if that was, but there was no way I could like actually double check like who got into the show because I didn't, there was no list out. And even when you went to their website, they didn't list any of the names of the artists that were going to be participating in the show um, or collectives or organizations that were going to be participating in the show. So yeah, I I did the best that I could to reach out to people and that was, you know, it was a bit of a success and a failure because uh, some people didn't want to be contacted. Um, some people didn't want to see the show canceled. Some people wanted to be paid. Some people didn't want to be paid. Um, some people wanted nothing to do with the Whitney and had already voiced that elsewhere. So yeah, there was um, there was conflict in the group, and that kind of played itself out in the threads of the emails. <laughs> When you started the process, had the cancellation already been announced? Yeah, it kind of happened. And I think that's why um, there was conflict in the group is because within the time of like people being interviewed by different like, you know, news sources, the Whitney decided to cancel the show and the thread had like kind of just begun. And so people were kind of arguing about like, not wanting to have the show canceled and placing blame on on people and stuff like this. And it happened pretty quick. Yeah, it seemed like it all happened really, really quickly. And then a little bit later on the day that the show was originally supposed to open, the letter that you and some of the other artists wrote together was released, highlighting the failures of the Whitney Museum and the situation as well as the field as a whole and calling on the museum to address many of the issues raised by the show and its cancellation. What was it like for you to be part of that collective response? Was this your first time being involved in a collective effort like this? I think it was, yeah, it probably was the first time to collectively refuse publicly like this, which was, for me, a little bit difficult because that public um, stance does come with a lot of attention and and that was (laughs) that's something that I kind of I'm in and out of like I can can receive that attention can also like not be able to receive that attention as well and so I think what I learned is that coming to consensus is really difficult with um, a, a large group and you know our group is not even that large but trying to come to some type of terms that is going to give everybody what they want is usually impossible, but coming to several things that we can agree on is 
it's hard to work in a big group and I don't see myself as the organizer and I don't see myself as an activist but it really did make me appreciate the organizers who are actually out in the world like doing larger projects that have more social implications you really do lose a lot of sleep there's a lot of like emotional labor and, and mental labor that goes into that organization of people which is like yeah it's just a challenge and it's like there's nothing it's not good or bad but it's just like things that you kind of learn along the way there's a certain risk always in putting your name on something publicly because even people who might otherwise agree with you might disagree with your tactics if not your motivation Publicly, I, I think when I was sharing on Twitter and and um, Instagram, I received praise for the things that I was saying in these interviews and stuff. Criticism, I think, came I think with inside of the of the group in the initial kind of emailing exchanges that we had because there was a lot of people who kind of fell out out of those email chains because they just didn't have the capacity to dive in to trying to find a way to respond. So, and then there was, there's other people who are very vocal about not wanting um, to be a part of this group and, and really frustrated with the people who decided that organization of the artists was a thing that needed to happen. And so there was criticism that came, I think, from, you know, that internal space of like working with people who just like had different views on like what they, how they wanted to see this happen. Yeah. Do you feel like this, you've seen any evidence that this is contributing to other conversations that might help with consciousness raising around issues of equity and how institutions treat their artists? Yes, I guess the letter does raise consciousness in the sense that it does call into question like these systems of acquisition that are in place in the museums and how there's a history of acquisitional practices that are unethical. You know, this, this event with the canceled collective action show is not isolated. It comes out of a not only a place like the Whitney Museum that has a history of unethically acquiring work, but also acquiring work from non-artists from different geographies and countries that don't have the privilege like some of us do to refuse or don't have the, the resources to refuse in the ways in which that we are refusing that really predate us and, and what happened in the 70s and 60s with the Whitney Museum and and their exhibitions of like black artists at that point in time. And so it, it continues a conversation that I think we have seen over time. And for those who haven't been aware of that history and, and that are coming into it through these letters, these open letters, I think raises consciousness there, right? So people who are don't have the assumption that these museums are bad or these museums are unethical or they you know, what have you. Um, I think it's an opportunity there to to inform and to educate. And then getting to that question of, has the Whitney said anything to the authors and signers of the letter since it came out? We were all uh, contacted by Faris and by Scott 
at the Whitney Museum first for a conversation. And in that conversation, we had, as a group who were participating at that point, were like went into that conversation, you know, addressing like what it is that we collectively wanted and wanted to repeat in these meetings with them to drive in like um, a demand, right? So yeah, we, we heard from, you know, first, I guess first like an email and then the conversation on Zoom. And then again, after the letter was published, another email responding to the letter and understanding the labor and time that went into organizing as a collective in a group and providing a fee for that, that labor, which was, I think, one step, but also addressing that they were open to having studio visits with people who wanted to have a studio visit. And, you know, they, they addressed that they're going to make the changes on acquisition practices and organization of shows like this in the future, but we shall see. One of the things in the letter that you mentioned was a, a year of programming, a year of um, actions around this. D- did they respond to that or did you s- decide to go forward as a group with that request? To be completely transparent, um, after this letter went out, I was in the process of like balancing a lot of like life things. And so I, I like had to step out of like, taking a position that could receive a lot of like tasks so i had to kind of see my limitations and you know capacities in that moment um but i would say that you know in the last kind of exchanges the emails and meetings that we had we did speak about the possibility of organizing ourselves do you think the whitney museum was speaking to the group in good faith or do you think this was just crisis management for them yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer because on the one hand, uh, my initial response is no. Like, why would I uh, want to form a relationship with an institution that had a significant misstep during um, a pandemic, a civil unrest, knowing that this is not solely on one individual? So there's many people who thought that this was a decent idea. But at the same time, you know, going back to this idea of like the career of the artist and what that looks like there is dependency that artists sometimes have to have on some certain institutions or uh, considering their practice and considering their the urgencies in their work having a stage or a platform like the whitney museum to display or exhibit your work does put you in a position to project you into this formation of a successful artist or an artist who makes a lot of money or you know an artist that sells or what have you and again going back to what I was saying earlier there's many formations of what of how to be an, an artist or how to have a career as an artist and so on the other hand I think about that in the back of my head I'm like oh well there is this like relation that I will continue to have with this institution that would benefit showing with them again. As you pointed out, the way that this show was handled is part of a number of longer conversations about unethical practices. This isn't the only time work was acquired in this way. And I actually helped organize an art benefit many years ago where a museum bought tickets and acquired work through the art benefit without, they disguised themselves. They did not put the name of the institution when they bought tickets. They bought tickets through multiple people so that multiple people could acquire work. 
And we didn't find out until after the fact. Um, and it was heartbreaking. It was a, such a slap in the face. Uh, and one of the things that I've seen on social media is artists talking about never participating in charitable auctions and sales again and not participating in situations where their work would be given out at less than market value or where they wouldn't be compensated for their work. It's a very understandable reaction. Is it one that you shared? Would you walk into a request to participate in an open call like the Printed Matter open call differently now that you've gone through this experience? After the Printed Matter, I mean, that was like another um, conversation that I had to have because and and also still kind of confused about on Printed Matter's relationship in this canceled show, which is that they didn't think about protecting the artists and they already had an established relationship with Faris and knew like that this show was being organized, but assumed that it would have been carried out in an ethical way where the artists would be contacted and, and told that this was happening before like the show would have, you know, gone up in the museum. It's just like a really challenging kind of conversation to have because it's like, it's something that I feel like like slides into so many different territories of of acquisition, of institutions, of working with digital ephemera. What are some of the things that have come out of this process for you personally? I think it just gave me uh, more evidence that like there is more leverage and there is more possibilities in working with the, with the collective as opposed to working as an individual. I think that's something that some people are still trying to, or haven't learned, or still trying to learn. Understanding like your own limitations and capacities, and working with a group, and being able to address them, and and not feel totally guilty by being burnt out in those dynamics and those relations, but also understanding that there is more possibility, there is more leverage in, in the collective as opposed to the, the individual. That's a big takeaway for me. It's hard not to think about like all of the open letters that have come out this year alone. Um, I think it's given some of us more time to sit with and reflect on different experiences where we felt wronged or put in a position that felt we were being taken advantage of or be abused, and not just in the art world, but you know, in many other worlds. And before, you know, we didn't have as much time to think about these things and like respond and react to these things there is something to be thought about more in maybe in a different conversation about the use of like the letter, the written language, not only as a gesture, but as a form of action and a form of participation as a collective to refuse. There are going to be a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode, from the letter that Fields helped co-author to the study on museum collections that I mentioned earlier along with links to Field's website and work. So please be sure to check those out. We're also eager to hear from you. Send us your stories of saying no to bad gigs, whether it was you acting alone or in a larger group. You can email us or record a voice memo and send it to theanswerisnoshow at gmail.com. You can also find us at The Answer Is No Show on Facebook and Instagram or on our website at theanswerisnoshow.com. 
And if you can, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast apps. Thanks so much to today's guest, Fields Harrington, and to Ali Cotterell, who's helping to produce and edit these podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. And remember, collectively saying no to bad gigs can help us all get to a better yes. The answer is no.